We're in Luke 9. We're going to finish up the first major section in Luke, all the way in covering his Galilean ministry, and we'll take a little bit of a break here and come back to Luke uh, shortly. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. What is greatness? Is it power? Is, is greatness power? Am I great if I can order people around and they follow what I say? Am I great if people are scared of me? Am I great if people are afraid to offend me? If they're afraid of what they might lose if they offend me? Is greatness power? Is greatness wealth? Maybe Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg are great because they are in the top ten of the world's richest people in this world. Is it influence? We look up to great leaders who command people's attention, who can motivate them to act. We even admire pastors, often rightfully, who have a great influence over this world and across this globe as their teaching goes forth. Is greatness success in work, in academics, in athletics, in ministry? I remember when I was young, I was way too righteous to admit that I lived for success in ministry, so I cloaked my dreams in self-righteous language and said, you know, it would be okay if I were the next John Piper, <laughs> if it's God's will, of course. But these things are so small. Wealth, influence, power, success, they're so small. And I read one author this week that said, the great tragic irony of a selfish preoccupation with tiny greatness is that truly great things appear small to us. Priceless things appear worthless. Magnificent things appear boring. And God appears of marginal importance. So in our text this morning, Jesus sets out to straighten our understanding of greatness. The greatness that truly matters is found in Jesus Christ, and it's recognized, it's found in those who are actually truly humble before the Lord. Now this, this section, these few verses here, it's really part of a, a bigger section that began in verse 37. We looked at the first part of this section last week, and it's highlighting the disciples' failures. Last week, we saw that disciples of Christ often fail to trust God's power. The disciples were unable to cast out this, this demon. They were not trusting the Lord to grant them the power. They were trusting in themselves at some level. And we saw, too, that followers of Christ often fail to trust God's plan. The disciples couldn't comprehend. It was, they were unable to see. It was concealed from them that Christ must go to the cross. He must be rejected by men. Now Jesus has just made this second prediction that he would go to the cross, that he will be rejected, that he will suffer, and that he will die. Now if we had that little tool that they have in the Men in Black movies where they can press a button and it erases your memory, right, up until a certain point, if we could erase your knowledge of Scripture, you didn't hear Jeff just read this text, all you know is that Jesus just predicted his death. 
What do you think the next conversation would look like? What do you think the next paragraph in the Bible would say? Well, you're wrong. And since your memory has been erased, I will tell you, there are, they are arguing about who is the greatest right after Jesus has just proclaimed that he will die. And so the disciples are going to learn this lesson, and it's a lesson that we must take to heart as well. And the first thing we learn is that disciples often fail to pursue true greatness. We see it there in the first several verses there. Look in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives the child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great." The disciples hadn't yet learned, they hadn't taken it into heart just yet, that the path to glory goes through suffering. It is true for Christ that the path of the the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ and the salvation that's available in Christ goes through the cross of Christ. And it's true of those who follow Christ that we all must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Him, even as we anticipate His glorious return and our presence with Him in eternity. The disciples are too focused on what they might gain from Christ. We might say they're too focused on the crown to even have a sight of the cross. So they they are found arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. And unfortunately for the disciples, this is not the first time they will have this conversation. Unfortunately for the disciples, this is not even the first time they will have it on the heels of Jesus predicting his own death. You see, at the Last Supper, they will be found arguing about who is the greatest. From what we know of the disciples and from other conversations between them, Their argument is most likely who will be greatest among them as Christ establishes and sets up his kingdom. Right? If Jesus is the Christ of God, as Luke said in chapter 9, verse 20, if he is the Christ of God, he is the Messiah, he is the Savior, how can I strategically position myself next to him so that I might get some kind of flow-down status or gain from my relationship with Christ? What power, what status, what notoriety is in it for me? I better start playing the politics and position myself correctly. So they're arguing. The image that comes to my mind is, in an election year, the presidential debates among the candidates. You'll get 12 of them on stage, and you get 30 seconds to explain why you should be the next leader of the free world. And so here we have the 12, the disciples, laying out their case, laying out their arguments. I'm sure they know that Christ is king, but they're arguing who might be second in command. Unlike the Last Supper, where the disciples just have this conversation in front of Christ, this argument seems to have happened outside of Jesus' earshot. And so, as we've seen before, Jesus doesn't need to hear something verbally to know exactly what's going on. The Son of God knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
He knew what Simon the Pharisee was thinking in Luke chapter 7. And he knows what the disciples have been arguing about here in chapter 9. And as we said with Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus reads minds, it usually doesn't go well for that person. And here it doesn't go well for the disciples, and if we're honest, it doesn't go well for us when God searches our hearts for the pride that has so taken root in us. Being honest this morning means being willing to admit that pride is deeply rooted in each of our hearts. You see, the expressions of pride are various. When we think of pride, we probably think of the person that commands everyone's attention in the room, who is free and boasting about themselves and their accomplishments. Yes, pride can look like this. Pride can look like hubris outwardly. But sometimes pride is more subtle. It's a preoccupation with what people think about me. It's an inability to say no because I'm afraid to disappoint anybody or I'm convinced if, it's, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? If it's going to be, it's up to me. And so each of us, if we're honest this morning, admit that, that pride still lurks in the deep recesses of our hearts. In the words of J.C. Ryle, of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. Of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian. So we admit our need this morning for this text and for this passage and for Christ to renew our hearts through his word. Christ knows the heart and he, he knows the reasoning of their hearts there in verse 47. And that word is actually the same root word that's, found, that's translated arguments in verse 46. Jesus knows the logic of their hearts. He knows the reasoning of their hearts. He knows why they think they should be greatest in the kingdom of God. You know, when Jesus asked in the last section, how much longer will I bear with this faithlessness and this twistedness of this generation? The disciples answer that question this morning. Just a little bit longer, Jesus. Just a little bit longer. Knowing... Their desire for greatness, Jesus does something quite interesting. He doesn't rebuke them for their desire to be great. He does not say you should not desire to be great. In fact, God has created man for some pretty wonderful purposes. Man was created in the image of God and given dominion over God's creation as God's representative on earth, as God's vice regent. Man was created with the unique ability to love and to know and to worship God. And so Jesus comes at this in a, in a manner that would suggest the problem isn't pursuing greatness. The problem isn't pursuing greatness. It's that sin has so corrupted this pursuit that the mere mention of greatness makes us nervous. If you were coming to church this morning and we'd hung a big banner out there that says you were designed to be great, that would make you nervous. That would make me a little bit nervous. We would get a little snarky, a little sarcastic, a little worried. What do you mean greatness? I am a sinner before God. Well, Jesus here doesn't take issue with greatness rightly defined. 
He takes issue with what sin has done to our idea of greatness. And isn't that what sin does? Sin takes something good and right and beautiful and godly and twists it to make it something ugly and vile. So how has sin twisted greatness? Well, first, it has caused us to define greatness in all the wrong ways. We looked at that in the introduction. We'll come back to that in a minute. Secondly, it has caused us to measure greatness by comparing ourselves with each other. And so we'll take those sort of in turn. It's caused us to define greatness in all the wrong ways. You see, Jesus sets out to, to actually define what real greatness, what true greatness is. And what he does, we'll see, is he turns the values of this world upside down. Or we might say he sets out to restore what sin has corrupted. He sets out to restore what sin has corrupted. Look there at the second part of verse 47. Knowing the reason of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And seeking to teach the disciples, Jesus takes a child, places him by his side. So he sets out to prove what true greatness really is, and he does it with a child. And what's interesting about what Jesus does is he takes a child, he puts the child by his side. That's, that's maybe what the disciples were arguing about. Who's going to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus? And look who Jesus grabs and places him by his side. It's a little child. And he picks a child, not because children are sweet and innocent and perfect. We know that's not true. Children are simply cuter sinners than we are. <laughs> Jesus picked a child because in this culture and in this context, children had the least pull, the least authority, the least power, the least social influence. And they are completely dependent, and so they have no argument worldly for being the greatest amongst the group. No argument. He picks this child because children are needy, and they are dependent. And oftentimes, children just assume that they are going to be taken care of. There's not a lot of thanks in taking care of a child. Rarely will a child stand up and say, you know, I would just like to thank my mother and my father for the way that they care for me. And I would like to praise my church for the way that they teach me. And they bring me up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so these, these children, they're needy, they're dependent, they have no power, they have no influence, and so they are the perfect test to prove whether someone wants to serve or whether someone wants to be served. The perfect test, because they're needy. In our culture, it would be the really young and the really old. That would be uh, similar to what Jesus is getting at, the really young and the really old. The unborn are killed regularly. And this mindset is actually sneaking into the way that people think about infants. Even a decade ago in Canada, a mother murdered her newborn child. And she, was, she threw the body over the fence when she was done. She was given 16 days in jail. And the judge's verdict was evil, but it was logical. She said, well, why would we punish her if she could have legally killed the child just a few days earlier inside the womb? 
The elderly are likewise discarded by our culture. The, the practice and acceptance of euthanasia is growing rapidly. These types of practices repulse those who call themselves Christian. We understand that God has made every person in the image of God. Every person has dignity and worth, not in and of themselves, but because it's been bestowed upon them on the basis of them being created in the image of God. Even those in our society, in our culture, who are completely dependent on others, completely and utterly dependent, are image bearers and worthy of life. But they're dependent And so they become a test. Are you willing to serve? Or do you only want to be served? And so if we're aiming at the world's definition of greatness, people who are completely dependent become disposable as we are on our path to pursue our goals and our dreams. James 3.16 comes to mind. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. How does our world get to where it is? It's jealousy and selfish ambition. And where those things exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. You could reverse that. Where you find every vile practice and where you find disorder, you can mark it down. There will be jealousy and selfish ambition. So God takes this child who is completely dependent and needy And God has revealed himself in Scripture as the one who sides with the weak and the lowly. He is the defender of the orphan and the widow and the alien in the Old Testament. And so as Jesus takes this small child, he was making the point that you and I cannot say in any meaningful sense that we welcome Jesus if we only exist to be served and are not willing to serve the most needy among us. Because they can't help us on our path to wealth and success and power, and influence. This sort of prideful, selfish ambition does not jive with the call to humble yourself and come to the Lord Jesus Christ on His terms. So Jesus welcomes the child. He welcomes the least uh, uh, among us. He welcomes the child, and so should we. So as the child stands next to Jesus... There's a solidarity, a union between those who are with Christ, even a child, even the least in society. There's a solidarity, a union between all those who come to Christ through faith, even the weak little child. All those who come to him are so tightly bound to him that Jesus says then to welcome a child is to welcome Christ. We might assume that this child is is a follower of Christ, although though young, and he has been united with Christ in such a way that to receive this child, the, the point isn't that if you're really nice to kids, then you get Jesus thrown in. It's that there's such a solidarity between Christ's people and himself that to receive Christ's people is to welcome Christ. You know, and... Saul, as he's walking down the road to Damascus, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, why? Paul wasn't persecuting Christ, was he? He was persecuting the church of God. Why would Jesus say that? Because to persecute the people of God is to persecute Christ himself. Probably a clearer example 
is what Jesus says in Matthew, that when he comes back in judgment, he will say to the righteous, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they'll say to Jesus, Lord, when did we feed you? When did we clothe you? When did you visit me? And Jesus says, well, you you did it to my brothers. And so you have done it unto me. In other words, to serve a fellow disciple, even a weak, helpless disciple who can't give you anything in return, is to serve Christ. And in Christ's body, there are no insignificant disciples, even helpless children. So Jesus then takes this this parallelism a step higher. As there is unity between Christ and someone as weak as a child, and so we ought to receive the child, we ought to welcome the child, we ought to be willing to serve the child. As there is unity between Christ and, and his people, there is a unity between Christ and the Father. So to welcome Christ, to receive Christ, is to receive the Father. As this child, as this disciple stands as a representative of Christ, so Christ stands as a representative of the Father. He reveals the nature and person of God and character in a way that's unique. He's God in the flesh. So we might say it the opposite way, then to reject Christ is to reject God. To reject Christ is to reject God. Or to say it more positively, the only way you might be made right with the Father is through the Son. The only way you might come unto God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come to make a way for us to be reconciled to Him. Our pride, our jealousy, our selfish ambition, our self-seeking, our pursuit of worldly greatness is an offense to God. It is vile to Him. When we pursue our own selfishness at the expense of others. These are disgusting in God's sight, and we are all guilty. We are all guilty of this selfish ambition. And this sort of selfish ambition, as we saw, leads to all kinds of wickedness and ungodliness. And outside of Christ, we stand justly and rightly condemned for all of our sin, not just our prideful presumption. And so Jesus comes and he takes on flesh and he perfectly serves the Father. He perfectly loves and serves his neighbor. He lays down his life on the cross, paying the penalty as our substitute for our sin. And if we humble ourselves this morning, if you would humble yourself this morning, if you would stoop low and admit that Christ is your only hope, Rely on Him and turn to Him, trusting in His work for you. Not your own righteousness, not your own goodness. Give up your pride in turning to Christ. You will be forgiven of your sin. And you will be so closely identified with Christ that when He looks at you, He will see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And not your son. When He sees the state of your soul, He pronounces it righteous because of the work of Christ is given to you as a a gift. By God's grace, there's many here. You know, I don't I don't see a lot of uh, first time guests this morning, but there are many here. If you have questions about Christ, or maybe you're a child and you could speak with your parents, you have questions about the gospel. Speak with somebody here this morning about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
No one would be more delighted to speak with you than one of the elders, one of the church members here, or your mom or dad, or your grandma or grandpa, whoever brought you to church. In verse 48 then, Jesus makes his point explicit. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. You see, one of the main problems of the disciples' argument is, and this is something that should bring us great hope, is that greatness in God's eyes is not found in comparison with one another. You see, sin distorted our definition of weakness, but it's also distorted how we measure greatness. We think it's measured in how we compete with one another. That's how all the worldly standards of greatness are measured. Success, wealth, influence, all of it. It's, it's measured by comparing yourself to one another and who measures up and who doesn't. And social media is designed to teach you and to train you that the more influence, the more likes you get, the more followers you get, the greater you are. Sin has turned greatness into a competition, and we are oftentimes drug along and just competing with one another. But this lowly status, this is not something we have to compete for. This is available to us all. We can't all achieve greatness as the world defines it. Most of us won't. Probably all of us won't. I was at breakfast with Paul earlier this week or last, and and Paul said, you know, most of us are far more insignificant than we could ever even imagine. And I thought to myself, this is why I need to hang out with Paul. And Paul's talking about worldly status, worldly significance. We can't all go high enough to attain greatness in this world, but we can all go lower. We can all humble ourselves to the point that we're willing to serve even the least among us. I hope you realize how refreshing that is, that as a church we don't have to strive against one another to pursue greatness. In fact, we strive with one another as we seek to become humble together before the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no need for competition amongst us. Selfish ambition rears its ugly head when we define greatness according to the world and we measure greatness according to the world's measure. But we don't have to compete with one another because we aren't compared with one another. We are compared here with God's standard of humility, of lowliness. Really, really, the sense of competition that should show up in a church is when Paul says in Romans, outdo one another in showing honor. And that's a friendly competition. Outdo one another in showing honor. If we are seeking to honor those around us instead of ourselves, isn't that, isn't that the lowliness and the humility that Christ calls for here? You know, if you want to argue and fight about who's last in line at potluck, the elders aren't going to stop you. This is a race to the bottom. And Jesus, I said he totally flips the world standards upside down. This is a race to the bottom. It is running after humility. And this humility is often expressed in how we receive someone as lowly as a child. So do we want to know the measure of greatness in a man or a 
woman, it's how they serve. It's how they serve. It's not the bank account. It's not their power. It's not their influence. It's not their social media accounts. It's not their followers. It is how they serve. True greatness is found in how willing you are to serve others, especially the lowly. You see, true greatness is, is one of our elders in the nursery right now holding a little baby. I think Neil's not in here. True greatness is Gene playing piano for us and then going up and sitting in a kid's class whilst Ellen teaches. True greatness is treating these, some of these ladies who come over to our church from the abused women's shelter and receiving them. And it's Teresa and Noah going over on a weekend before the elders can even figure out what to do and serving them and meeting this lady's needs. True greatness is John singing at the nursing home with no cameras. There's no social media posts about it. There's sometimes people yelling that they can't hear. And we could go on and on. But true greatness is equal to the degree that you and I have learned to crucify self-exaltation. To crucify self-exaltation and selfish ambition. It is humbling ourselves in light of Christ. See, selfish pride is the enemy of true greatness as God counts greatness. And we see that that same prideful disposition then show up again in John here as he tries to exclude others from doing ministry in the name of Christ. Let's look at those last two verses. Followers of Christ often fail to put away competitiveness. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The selfish ambition that led to infighting amongst the disciples now leads to excluding and ostracizing those who are outside the group. Again, Luke highlights, and he puts these stories in succession on purpose. He's highlighting the failure of the disciples to hear and to apply the teaching of Jesus. Our Lord has just finished giving them an illustration about how they ought to be receptive even to those who are the least among them. And John says, let me tell you how I have absolutely not done what you just said. And John answers that they have sought to exclude someone from ministering in the name of Christ. There was apparently a man, we don't know anything about this man, who was doing the works that Jesus had empowered the twelve to do earlier in chapter 9. He was casting out demons in the name of the Lord. Not to do something in the name of the Lord, it's to do something as a representative with sort of um, authority that's been granted to you. We don't know this man, but we can actually, I think, sympathize with the disciples a bit here. They were the ones, as far as they knew, they were the ones who were given power and authority over disease, over death, and over demons, and they were sent out to preach the gospel. And so this, this authority they knew was a derived authority. And now there's somebody over here that's casting out demons. And they ask, who is this guy? We tried to get him to stop. Again, probably another implication. The disciples failed to even get this guy to stop. John's boast reminds us of, of Joshua's plea to Moses in Numbers 11. There were two men, two men Eldad and Medad. Those are great names. 
They were speaking God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. They were prophesying in the Spirit. And when Joshua found out, he said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. They're not one of us. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish all people were speaking God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now this ought to have been the response of the disciples. They ought to have been rejoicing that this man was doing ministry in the name of the Lord. But they had a reason. They said, but since he's not one of us, since he doesn't travel with us, we tried to get him to stop. The mistake the disciples make here is maintaining an exclusivist, elitist mentality. I think the application we can draw is that we should be slow to label someone an enemy. Steve Lawson, who, if you know or listen to him, no one would accuse him of being soft on doctrine. He says you don't want to go hunting with someone who shoots at everything. And you don't want to hang around with someone who argues about everything. We should be slow. We should be patient. Once again, humility is in order. One warning I, I, I needed to hear from this passage is I am often too confident in my motives when I'm criticizing others. I'm often too confident in my own motives when I'm criticizing others. I assign to myself the best motives and I assign to others the worst possible motives. Insofar as we are able, we ought to rejoice in the ministry of those who are holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have to affirm every point of doctrine, but we should be characterized by a spirit of joy when God's word is going forth. Paul even praised God that the gospel is being proclaimed out of envy and rivalry. One way we try to model this at our church is, is what you saw earlier in the service, where we try to pray for churches in our area. We, we pray for churches sometimes outside of our area that we know and we love, and we have people there that we love. But we want these churches to succeed. We want them to do well. We want the word to go forth. We want them to remain faithful, so we appeal to the one who can ensure that that happens. We plead with God that other churches in our area are raised up and they're preaching Christ and they're faithful to God's word. And in that, we will rejoice because we're not in competition. So in verse 50, Jesus rebukes the disciples. Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is an, an ongoing action. Stop trying to get this guy to quit. Stop trying to get this guy to quit doing ministry in my name. This man is on the same team. He is for you, and if he is for you, he is not against you. So quit opposing him and his ministry. Some of you were here early in the summer when Pastor Bob from Springfield, Missouri was with us, and he challenged us from Acts 5. And I thought Pastor did a really nice job of reminding us that Southern Hills is a wonderful church. I, you know, I'm biased. It's the greatest church in the world. A wonderful church. It's a special place. But, but Pastor helped us see, you know, we're not the only show that God has going in this world. 
He helped us to humble ourselves and to remind us that no church has a monopoly on wisdom. And so we are wise this morning, I think, to hold our theology with firm confidence, but also to seek a humble heart. After all, isn't that what theology should do for us? It ought to humble us, not puff us up. What part of total depravity and God's free and sovereign grace should puff us up? But notice in verse 50, this man was indeed for them. So we not only want to avoid an elitist, exclusivist attitude, we want to avoid the opposite error. A laissez-faire attitude towards theology, towards ministry, towards practice. You see, Jesus says here, if they're not, if he's not against you, he's for you. And Jesus, the same Jesus, would say elsewhere, anyone who is not for me is against me. So there is a sense in which we need to be sure of our doctrine and be willing to preach against false teaching and false doctrine. And so we talk about in our membership class, trying to fit this into our minds, what we call theological triage. Now triage, uh, in a hospital setting, they're trying to determine who needs the most urgent care right away and who can wait a little bit. So when we talk about theological triage, we're talking about we're saying that all doctrine matters, sure, just like everyone in the emergency room matters. But some doctrines more urgent, it rises to the top. And if that sounds weird to you, and it might, I'll just, we should just ask, would you rather disagree with somebody on the atonement of Christ or on the nature of the Nephilim in Genesis 6, the sons of God? If you, had a, if, if you had a family member that was, you know, they're your brother in Christ, where, where are you going to want to disagree there? I should hurry. We have three levels of doctrinal importance. Then. First are those most important doctrines. If you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. The deity of Christ, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, the virgin birth. There's these doctrines that you're just not a Christian. You just don't hold to the Christian faith. If you don't hold to these articles of faith, the substitutionary atonement of Christ comes to mind. That's, that's the first level. You're not a believer if you don't hold to these. The second level is those areas that we can disagree on. I can affirm that you're a Christian, but we're going to have a hard time being members of the same church. So I don't have to call you an unbeliever if you can't join my church, but, but there's, there's doctrinal distinctives that are going to make it uh, better, more effective, if we're actually members of different congregations. The most obvious example is baptism. If someone is convinced that their little infant needs to be baptized, and I'm convinced from Scripture that I should only baptize believers, how can we function together in the same church? I can affirm somebody's salvation without assuming we should all be members of the same church. The third tier, then, is those areas where we can disagree and be members of the same church. The definition of the Nephilim in Genesis 6 comes to mind. In our statement of faith, we specifically say that we hold and teach premillennialism in this church. But we are glad to welcome members who disagree with us here. 
We believe we can function as members of the same church, even with disagreements on that particular issue. So, those who aren't in tier one, we're not calling for a lack of discernment. Those who aren't preaching Christ as the only means of salvation, who don't hold to the Trinity, who don't hold to the substitutionary atonement of Christ, we should not listen to them. But we should be slow to attack faithful ministers that we disagree with on those secondary issues. We aren't in competition, so we don't have to build ourselves up we don't, by tearing others down. So there's certainly a time for us to call out false teaching. We have and we will. There's a place to call the church to greater discernment and to warn so that we're not led away into error. So being gracious and kind and humble here does not mean being a pushover. Being gracious and humble and kind doesn't mean being a pushover. But I do want to warn us to be leery of a preacher or author who makes a name for himself only, hear me, only by attacking others. Or primarily by constantly fighting with others. Paul warned about these teachers in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. They, they, they thought they had to tear another teacher down in order to build themselves up because there's only so much money, there's only so much fame, there's only so much influence to go around. So if I'm going to be at the top, I've got to destroy others on my way to the top. So we should be leery of preachers and pastors who make this the staple of their ministry. We should also be leery that in our own heart, there's something that draws us towards a fight. When a fight happens, what happens? All eyes go to the fight. There's something in our own heart that is drawn towards the fight. And what I want to encourage our congregation with this morning is let's humble ourselves and let's focus on the ministry of the body here. Let's pour our energy into one another before we pour out our lives fighting other people that we've never Matt, we want to pour out our lives in service to one another. Instead of getting dragged away by dissension and fighting, in other words, let's pursue true greatness together. Let's serve one another in all humility. Let's look to the author and finisher of our faith. You see, no one is greater than Jesus Christ. If we're talking about what is true greatness, no one is greater than Jesus Christ because true greatness is humility. And no one has humbled themselves to the point that Jesus Christ has humbled himself because no one else had so far to come down. Jesus left heaven's glory. He didn't consider it something to be grasped, to be held onto so tightly that he was unwilling to come to this earth. He came lowly. He came helpless. He made himself of no reputation. He took on himself the form of a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus laid down his life in sacrifice for our sins. He humbled himself, Paul says in Philippians 2, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul's command for us there is, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Why don't you and I seek to humble ourselves the way that we've seen the humility of Christ on display? 
In other words, let us deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ, because that's true greatness. That's true greatness. Let's pray. Lord, we're so lured and tempted to be great according to this world. Forgive us. Father, may we be humble this morning. Seek to be great in your sight. Humble servants of the lowly. Those who seek to serve those you've placed in this body. We love you. We're thankful for the work of Christ on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.